You're listening to a podcast brought to you by international law firm Trowers and Hamlins, combining market sector thought leadership, advice, and ideas, helping businesses and governments prepare for the future. Hello, and welcome to our latest Trowers podcast. I'm Lizzie Pillinger, a partner in the real estate department, and I'm going to be talking about intergenerational living. And um, I am here today with Steve Connor, the Development and New Business Manager from Phoenix Community Housing, and Jenny Bitzerki, a Partner and Design Specialist at PRP Architects. I know Jenny and Steve, you've both been involved in some intergenerational schemes, but I wanted to start by just asking you what what that means to you and how you might distinguish it, if, if you want to distinguish it at all, from, from other terms that we hear in this kind of arena, so things like co-living and uh, multi-generational housing. Jenny, can I ask you first to answer that? Yes, thank you. And thank you for inviting me. Um, I suppose multi-generational is more sort of at at the micro level where you're looking at uh, mixing generations within one dwelling, um, essentially. And that can be sort of in the form of uh, we've built multi-generational housings on Chobham Manor, for example, at Olympic Park, where you have uh, a family house with an annex for an older person. That can that can change use if you like to uh, you know maybe your younger student moving into it at a later stage but um and also things like home share where you might get a younger person moving in with an older person and that to me is the multi generational house really and um, I would say intergenerational is more sort of on the the um macro level where you're looking at how you place older people within a wider community. Um, and that's how older people's dwelling it could be something like uh, an integrated retirement community or sheltered or retirement housing sitting within an, either an existing community or within a master plan. And basically those are very much designed to enable people to age in place. Um, co-living is something a bit different. Um, co-living such as the Older People's Co-Housing Scheme in Barnet, it was built in 2016, places a group of older people or older ladies within um, a, a wider community of Barnet itself. So there, there are sort of nuances behind it. But I would say intergenerational design and intergenerational placemaking is about actually placing older people within the whole community and not designing master plans that are aimed at one uh, generation, such as family housing. Thanks, Jenny. Um, Steve, have you got anything you'd like to add to that? Yeah, I think that's... Hello, everyone. Um, I think that's absolutely right. Um, I, I think I've been pondering this question for a few years now, and... Um, I'm not sure there's an absolute definition of what intergenerational housing is. Um, we've probably all grown up in one form of intergenerational housing or another. If you live on a street surrounded by different age groups, um, that in a way is intergenerational housing. So I guess for me, it is about different age groups living in the same household or in close proximity to each other as a very sort of general way of looking at it. And that could mean a younger person lodging with an older person, um, or it could be some of the examples that Jenny's already mentioned. Thanks, Steve. That sounds to me like that part of the reason that we're even having this conversation is the fact that we have um, moved away from or seen a move away from the way that, that housing has traditionally been built with people kind of living in their families or close to their families to... Um, planning and building for particular phases in people's lives. So, um, you know, we have family housing, but equally we have 
housing, we talk about student housing, we have seniors housing, and those things seem to be um, fairly siloed or can be fairly siloed. Um, what do you guys think are the the advantages of trying to reintegrate the generations in the way that, that housing is, is built and lived in? So I, I think one of the kind of recognised concerns for, for older people is, is loneliness and isolation and the idea of living in a community or as part of a community where you have communication with different age groups on a regular basis um, or take part in activities involving different age groups is a great way of avoiding the sort of uh, fears and anxiety that the ageing process might create. I suppose ultimately we should be creating communities for everyone in society um, and I think there has been a lot of emphasis I guess on things like even through stamp duty relief and through first-time buyers. There's been a lot of drivers to try and create you know, new communities or placed housing within existing communities that actually is very much aimed at one demographic. Um, and that's not a community. A community is made up of everyone. Um, exactly as, as Steve just said, you know, I live next door to on one side with an 80-year-old lady and on the other side I have a young, very young family. That is a community at the end of the day. A community is not made up of one generation. So I think that's that's the thing that we should be driving for. And we then also need to think about, you know, what do our older residents want out of their later years in life? And ultimately, they want to stay active, and that's like socially active, physically active, and uh, mentally active. And so we need to sort of think almost beyond what that all means and think about what the benefits they also bring back to the communities they live in. They, they want to stay in their communities, um, but they also have a wealth of life experience that they can, you know, can be shared with younger people. You know, they're volunteers in our community. You know, they're more likely to be the people at home during the day and, and you know, they add to the local neighbourhood economy on a daily basis. They keep an eye on your house when you're out at work, you know, and, you know, they're your good neighbours. They're the people who take your deliveries during the day when you're out. And it's trying to think of all those benefits and making sure that, you know, how we design those communities actually takes advantage of that and, and celebrates it. Um, we don't want to see older people pushed to the side in the last bit of the land that um, nobody has to think of what to use for. It's about placing them in the heart of these communities and making them part of it and celebrating our later years, really. That's lovely. Yeah, um, I think that's really great. And, that, and that's something I hear quite often is is uh, the idea that the older people look at, you know, specialist older person's housing and say, but I don't want to live with the old people uh, because they don't see themselves that way. Um, so, yeah, that's a lovely, a lovely way of putting it. Steve, did you have something you were going to jump in with there? Well, I was just going to say that. One of, certainly one of our hopes for the intergenerational scheme that we're creating is that um, the increase in social connections between uh, the individuals who live there, it's, it's not just about the different generations communicating with each other, but trying to create a situation where the older generations communicate with each other and they develop strong sort of bonds, social bonds, and that in a way makes them happier, keeps them active, and ultimately keeps them independent for much longer in life. And that, that's what we're, we're hoping that this will bring about, really. Lovely. Thanks, Steve. Um, I think that's probably a really uh, good lead-in to ask Steve if you want to talk to us a little about Melfield Gardens, a scheme you've 
you've been working on um, with us recently and well, we've been working on with you. And then after perhaps Jenny, you can tell us about some of the schemes that you've worked on as well. Yeah, so we are developing a new housing scheme called Melford Gardens. Um, the reason it came about was we had developed um, what's called an extra care scheme for older persons with low and medium care needs, about 200 metres away from uh, this particular development site. And we were really sort of pleased with um, the development and also recognised that we are an unusual organisation. We're, we're resident-led and we spend a lot of time getting to know about the um, community that we work for. And within that community, we recognised that there was a very large number of older people. Um, so our sort of um, analysis of, of our residents suggests that by 2025, something like 35% of our residents will be over the age of 65. And about 9% of those will be over the age of 75. So we certainly had a big resident and an older population within our residents, um, Phoenix residents group. So we felt it was appropriate to build on the success of Hazelhurst Court, which was the extra care scheme, and develop a new older person scheme for people over the age of 55. Um, building in such close proximity to Hazelhurst, we thought had advantages because there may be an opportunity to use the extra care scheme for both parties to kind of benefit, really, and share the facilities that we were creating. We also recognised that within the Phoenix group, of over 55, so there were quite a few homes that were being under-occupied, or at least that's what statistics suggest. Um, so we felt that designing um, really high-quality homes for this age group that were focused on getting the sizing right, um, so we created homes that were called One Bed Plus, so there was a, a flexible space just off the living room um, that could be used for a variety of uses, anything from a study to an extension of their living space, storage purposes for, for anything really, a, a treatment area, um, perhaps even for a, a carer or a family member to stay overnight should that be needed. So we wanted to create new flats that were attractive to this group that were under-occupying family-sized housing. Now, that was something that we had great success with with Hazelhurst Court um, the extra care scheme. When we offered people who were occupying Phoenix homes an opportunity to live in Hazelhurst Court, we freed up 20 family-sized homes by doing that. And of course, that leads to a, a sort of a chain reaction in that someone who's currently overcrowded within a two-bedroom flat can move into a three-bedroom house. Someone who's overcrowded within a one-bedroom flat can move into a two-bedroom flat. So it suddenly created what we call chain letting. So we were hoping by the um, the new homes we were creating at Milford Gardens, we could have a similar effect and move people that were over the age of 55 into these new homes that we were creating. We also wanted to make the scheme as environmentally uh, considerate as possible and decided to adopt the passive house methodology. Now, this is um, probably the highest energy efficiency standard that it is recognised in the UK, um, it's certainly recognised in Europe and across the world. And what's, I guess, really the idea of it is that you live in a um, home that's extremely comfortable year-round, so it's warm, doesn't suffer from overheating in the summer, but also needs very, very little in the way of heating. 
and so which is great now because obviously with bills being so high that's a that's a really important thing and you sort of are looking at maybe savings of 70 to 80 percent over typical sized typical uk housing um if you live in one of these homes so um so that was another important feature of the scheme and then we decided to as if this wasn't enough we decided that we would kind of look at intergenerational housing and the possibility of moving some younger people to live alongside the uh, older residents. And we, from a very early on, we approached Goldsmiths University in London and asked if they might be interested in, in some of their students, the idea of some of their students living in those, uh, those homes that we created. They were really, really positive. Um, and uh, from, from the beginning, they've been a great partner to work with. And the idea is now that we will have two four-bedroom flats where postgraduate students will occupy and they will give up um, about an hour of their time each each week. So that's eight students, eight hours a week. And they will take part in, voluntarily take part in activities um, and get to know the local residents and, yeah, hopefully help to create a... Um, a really nice environment for people to get to know each other and enjoy life. Jenny, do you want to tell us about some of the stuff you've been involved in as well? I guess um, our team at PRP, you know, we've been going for about 25 years now and we've looked at every different form of later living uh, design that you could possibly imagine. Um, so, you know, when we look at sort of the housing with care models, such as the one Steve just mentioned, you know, we... we place those within communities and I still see that as intergenerational housing because it's part of a intergenerational offer really but on um, there was one specific project at Oakfield and Swindon that we worked on um, which is currently on site and I think it was quite a refreshing look it's a really refreshing refreshing focus on intergenerational living and um, the client nationwide it was the first time in some some time that they had looked at house building uh, they wanted uh, to build society, is exactly how they put it. And they showed this real commitment to creating a community at this particular site in, in Swindon, which is where their headquarters are. There was a particular focus really on how they, they could actually provide for the needs of the whole of society. Now, the site wasn't a huge site, so we weren't looking at putting a massive new community on it that we could put a specialist housing in it. So we did look at that originally, but it would have taken up quite a large proportion of the site. And we also looked at lots of different models, such as the one Steve mentioned about having students living alongside. But again, it wasn't a local university um, that we could have that um, sort of co-living between older and younger students um, sort of get mutual support. So we, we did an awful lot of uh, blue sky thinking on it um, and really ultimately nothing was off the table. So PRP, we were, we were actually the intergenerational architects and we worked alongside some master planners on it. And after you know trying out a lot of different models and t- testing what would work on the site and what would work within the master plan, we almost went back to square one and started consultation in real earnest. And Nationwide um, employed a community activator who literally went round and knocked on the neighbouring doors and said, what do you want out of your community? Uh, we also had a focus group um, that was uh, made up of some people who were the pensions with Nationwide. They invited them to come along and join the focus group. We talked to them, people that lived in that area of Swindon to try and find out what they wanted. And it was quite interesting because the site sits between 
primarily private part of Swindon and also to the site that sits there's quite primarily again affordable housing and this site actually sat as a like a hole between the two and actually almost prevented the connection between these two communities so it actually became even more than that it wasn't just how we create all the generations in this site but how we connect these two communities so through the focus group and through the consultation we um came to the decision that um like a housing care model wasn't what we were going to do um nationwide didn't want to be an operator of that they wanted um to have this sort of new model um for a master plan that would actually have all communities on it and that somehow through design could we forge a sense of neighborliness between all the generations um but also we had to we had to think quite carefully about tenure uh, and, and also about affordability and um, because as I say, there was quite a variety of tenures on the, in the adjacent areas. So we actually, within the master plan, we, we actually influenced the master plan itself to make sure what we felt was a dimension-friendly master plan. So we were looking at the placemaking, make sure that everything was very logically laid out, that people could find their way across the master plan quite easily, and thinking about how we place certain uh, buildings within it so it actually connected these two communities. And we came up with three different typologies within it. So one of those was the hub building um, and it's the focal point for the master plan and it comprises of a community space that sits on the ground floor again that was something that the community said they wanted and above that sits a range of different apartment typologies so there's on each floor there are two flats for older people two for younger people and one for wheelchair users so we we're almost creating communities within the communities at, at a floor by floor level um, in addition to that, uh, we had what, we, what became known as walk-up apartments. Um, and the walk-up apartments, basically, they turned the corner of the urban blocks quite nicely. Um, and we've created it so there's a ground floor apartment for an older person and a first floor apartment for a younger person. And that takes away the need for lifts and it makes everything very accessible to the older people. And then we also had, uh, and the, the, each of those, sorry, the hub and the walk-up apartments were all aimed at the affordable market. In addition to that, what we found out was in, in one of the areas, there was there was quite a large quantum of bungalows in this area and people felt they were very popular. A lot of people had bought them and they're you know, thinking they was future-proofing themselves for the later years. But the feedback we got was these were actually quite large properties and they had really, really huge gardens. So we created a site, different typology, which became known as the Agent Place Cottages. And they were very much aimed at the private sector and they were to attract sort of recently retired, quite active older people with two stories um, designed to beyond lifetime homes. And they were placed um, and a part of the master plan so that they could actually link up to shared garden spaces. We had this theme across the whole master plan, which was known as homestead gardens. And the homestead gardens are shared garden spaces that all the family houses back onto. And the age and place cottages and apartments that we've just that mentioned, they all back onto these homestead gardens. So if you lived in an age and place cottage, you'd have a small garden that was yours, but a very small garden. And you'd open your garden gate and you're onto this shared garden where there are lots of things like allotments and different sort of edible growing spaces. Um, and it was, again, trying to force that sense of neighbourliness so you could actually go out there, meet the local families, do a little bit of garden, do as much as you could in the garden, but be there with all the generations. So there's lots of different things like that, but even down to looking at how we position front doors. So the walk-up apartments, for example, have the younger and the older person's front doors next door to each other. So you're just bumping into your neighbour on a daily basis. Or you see the Amazon delivery driver turning up for the younger person who's out at work and you can take in their deliveries that day. And it was really sort of 
the things and they're and they're they're placed all across the master plan so there is an offer for note for old people to move into different parts of that master plan depending one on their financial circumstances and two what actually just would attract them some they would want to live in their later years that also sounds lovely <laughs> <laughs> i'm now torn between well i mean steve's development is actually just down the road from where i live so uh, that would that would be less of a move but they both sound amazing um so a couple of bits that both of you touched on there was facilities um, that are sort of shared facilities potentially um, and and also the design. And, and I guess my question is when you are trying to house people who potentially have different interests or different needs from their homes, how do you um, marry together those needs and what are the design considerations that that need to be taken into account and how do you how do you bridge those gaps and and what do you need to do to make a space that is workable for you know let's say a student who's in steve's case a student who's doing their postgraduate studies and somebody who is you know at home all day and and um how do those sort of shared spaces and design considerations work Jenny, can I ask you to just highlight in particular if any other sort of aspects of, of the sort of building design? I suppose the thing is always trying to understand what the different generations are after um, from the perspective of inside their home as well as outside their home. You know, older people are ultimately looking for security. They're looking for limited maintenance. They do love garden spaces. They love being outdoors, but they can't always take care of those spaces or maybe they can when they move in. As they get older, maybe less so. The other thing is about trying to combat social isolation, which I know Steve has mentioned. Um, so I think through design, we can encourage social isolation, not force it, but we can encourage it. We can encourage people to actually engage with the community around them if they want to do so, because at the end of the day, it's their choice. But I think younger people obviously look for something slightly different from their homes but actually, from the places that are around us, I think we all want places that are active, you know, somewhere you can go out. You know, I think we've got another scheme, which is an older people's housing scheme in West Bank, right, that's also currently on site. And it, it's placed older people's housing, there's about 197 units that sits above uh, 11 retail units. And they're really lovely, beautiful, bespoke retail units that overlook um, a, a public square. And that public square has been designed to look very carefully at um what happens all year round, you know, whether it's a Christmas fair or ice rinks in winter time, through to you know summer farmers markets, and, and it's a bit thinking the the continual use of those spaces and what that could look like, and the older people ultimately are above that, so they their facilities, which you know cafes and restaurants and spas and everything, they're on the ground floor along the retail units, so anybody can access those, and you can allow the the you know the whole community to come in and, and integrate with everyone within those spaces and really use them. it creates a destination for the wider community but nevertheless the older people you know security is something or perceived perception of the perception of security is often the issue so they living above that you know that there are secure doors going up there and there are some spaces in, in those upper levels with uh rooftop gardens and podium gardens that are just for the older people and that allows them to be as integrated into the community as they wish to be. And equally, they've got their own house that they can then stay in. So it, it is about getting the, the nuance around it. But there has to be certain things in the design that we do that actually gives them the protection, the privacy they need, but also encourages them to, to socialise whenever they feel that that's what they want to do. So, Steve, one of the things Jenny had mentioned just when she was explaining about Oakfield was the consultation and focus groups that they did. And I know... Um, 
well, because I was at one of them, that you'd, you'd run a series of, of workshops between the students and your and your residents, because as, as you mentioned earlier, you are resident led. So there's a really strong focus on your residents driving what's needed. Do you want to tell us a bit about those focus groups and the, you know, how they were run and, and what kind of thoughts and ideas came out of them? Yep. So um, we had three workshops, um, all of them virtual, because they, they brought people from all over the place, really. Um, the first workshop was with some older residents who live at Hazelhurst Court, the extra care scheme I mentioned earlier. And so we, we decided that we would split the workshops. First workshop was with older residents. Second workshop was with um, students and members of Goldsmiths University's kind of management team, housing management team. And then in the third workshop, we brought both parties back together and we discussed some of the kind of information that they'd each supplied us during the first two workshops. And that informed the questions for the third uh, group. So I think the outcome from the first workshop with our older residents was that in principle, they liked that we described the development um, and we went into detail as to, I think some of the things that Jenny mentioned there about the way that we designed the homes to create spaces for people to meet, but for people to also be um, independent. So we'd we'd create some really nice meeting spaces within the landscaping, within the uh, walkways, within the different in the housing blocks. We'd created a communal garden room. We'd created a, a private garden area, all of which were kind of aimed at these kind of uh, both formal and informal meeting. So having described the development. And then the idea of um, introducing students. It was quite interesting because the residents had very strong views. They liked the idea of having a different age group living alongside them. In fact, this wasn't dissimilar from what you would have in a normal sort of street environment anyway. But they didn't like the idea of having to be forced into anything. So um, they didn't like the idea of, for example, a resident who, or, or a student who was keen to, to kind of um, talk to different members of this uh, community. They didn't want that to be a forced thing. So they didn't want someone perhaps knocking on their door or necessarily to have a student who was, um, let's say, right, you're going, this student is going to look after numbers one, two, three, four, and five. This, what, this student is going to look after the residents of numbers seven, eight, nine, ten. They, they didn't want something that was very formulaic like that. They... They felt that things needed to be organic and that they both needed to go on a kind of a, a well, just a natural relationship, really, just to form a natural relationship. Um, and then we spent quite a lot of time talking about this sort of thing and what that might mean um, without it really necessarily coming up with a definite or a definitive answer. Then with the students, it, it was quite a different conversation, really. I think they were... First of all, very practical about um, they wanted to know about the accommodation, what it'd be like, you know, what they would, what their bills might be each week, where it was located in relation to the university, what support they might get. So, you know, as a housing association, would we give them support in perhaps organising an activity um, within for the community to take part in? So, yeah, the conversation with students was 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 very practical. They they were. Um, aware of their commitments. Many postgraduate students would have to balance education and perhaps part-time employment. Um, so they were mindful of the amount of time that they'd be able to spend 
to volunteer each week and to commit to. So there were two quite different conversations, really, to begin with. And then in the third workshop, we sort of had the, if you like, the learning of what both groups, the perspective that both groups had on the, the idea. And we, again, just kind of sought their opinion on a range of scenarios. So, for example, so in the third workshop, we shared really the outputs from both groups from the first two workshops. And then from that discussion, we built a um, what we called a, a community promise that both really a vision that the, both the older residents and the students could sign up to, which loosely kind of, um, from a student's perspective, they were volunteering an hour of their time each week. From a resident's perspective, there was no hard and fast rules how this time had to be spent. It was something that they would find out together. So, um, and that from a Phoenix perspective, we would support the development of the relationships between them. Uh, this is an area that over the next 12 months, we're going to spend a lot of time with Goldsmiths University sort of refining, I guess, to ensure that we can both record and evaluate the, the benefits of what we're doing. That's lovely, Steve. Thank you. Everything we've said so far has been rightly very positive, but I'd like to just touch on briefly any particular challenges or risks that come with this type of housing and this type of development. And do either of you have anything that you you sort of came across with these schemes um, that were was particularly difficult to overcome? I suppose, uh, like all of the schemes we do, there's always a an education piece that needs to be done and that's uh, trying to get a vision of what you're trying to achieve across to uh, those people that may consider moving in but it's also actually to the planning authorities and um, planning authorities you know are under a lot of pressure to hit housing targets and that's a lot of the driver behind the policies that we see coming through and um, to try and actually put forward what age-appropriate housing looks like and to make sure that it's actually in local plans and, and how, you know, to make sure that we can actually respond to those is always a challenge. And that comes right through from the housing or care models right to the through to these intergenerational approaches. And um, whilst the vast majority of local authorities, well, I think it's, it's now about 50% of local authorities have some sort of a policy on older people's housing, um, it's not very detailed in a lot of cases. There's not actually, it doesn't actually say what type of housing that is. It doesn't even say, vast majority of them don't even say that they've got particular sites allocated for it. But it's, it's quite generic what we see. Um, and I, I believe very, very strongly that the location of older people's housing, whether it's these types of intergenerational housing or, you know, specialist housing, it needs to be considered really carefully about where we where we place those within within communities. You know, we, you see often um, architects putting or urban designers putting forward these walking diagrams of how long it takes somebody to walk from A to B, how far they're from the local amenities. Well, if you're eighty five years old and your walking pace is substantially different, you know that that could take you twice as long to get to to your local facilities. So I think in all of these, it's about educating the designers, educating the planners um, to sort of really think through what's what's coming forward and make sure that, that the older people are not the ones from the furthest part from the local GP surgery or the shops 
because actually um quite often we, we see as well as oh it's fine it's a five minute bus ride but if you take half an hour to be able to get out of your flat and get to the bus stop before you even get to those amenities that's enough to put you off going out so i think the stressing putting old people at the heart of communities literally should be they should be the ones that are the closest in all these communities that we're putting into everything that, that they need to get access to the rest of us can invariably walk or get the bus easily but whenever you're 80 odd years old that's just not possible so for me that's one of the biggest barriers i think also placemaking is a, is a big thing and on oakfield we there was a lot of um emphasis on placemaking and how we made the master plan as dementia friendly as possible and lots of people say what do you mean by dementia friendly well in in my view it's actually really good design you know if you have to walk into an area and rely on signage to get round because you can't see where you want to go and um, that's really annoying for most people but for someone with like early onset dementia or just a bit of memory loss or a bit of confusion that's an impossibility you know we shouldn't be relying on signs we should know when you walk in that you're in a, a park or you're in a public square you should be able to see where the shops are you should be able to see where the bus stop is and um, so it's about having those really logical approaches and making out the wayfinding around those spaces really really clear i think that's probably one of the most important things and i think we can all cite things within our own communities where that's not the case so i think we want to see a real drive to make those um, dementia friendly and barrier free there is no reason to have all these uh, raised curbs everywhere and you know barrier free is actually easy for anybody it's easy for somebody with a pushchair it's easy for somebody in a wheelchair and it's easy for somebody in a, in a with a zimmer frame to get around so thinking about it being barrier free and dementia friendly i think are the two key things we should be considering but they can often be the biggest barriers um, to prevent people going out yeah and i think that's going to be you know ever more important as the numbers of us developing dementia you know looks that to increase so yeah that's that's really important jenny thank you i'll just ask steve for his view on any particular risks um challenges that you you came across i think jenny's absolutely right location is a key thing it was a key thing here for the students of Osmosh university so had we not been where we were within 20 minute cycle ride from you know Deptford, where the Goldsmith university is located that certainly would have a spanner in the work straight away really I think. Um, I guess we were building on the knowledge that the location for this older person's housing was alongside an existing uh, and a new extra care scheme which which was working well so we felt it was a it was a good location it's got a train station literally um, two minutes walk away which brings you into central London or down to Bromley within a few minutes so you know 10-15 minutes so in that way, it is very well located. Um, I think the, for anyone who's considering older persons housing and certainly intergenerational housing, you, you do want to have a very good, clear brief from the outset, really. Um, ours was very clear. We did want an older person scheme. We didn't want an extra care scheme. We kind of um, had wanted to focus on an offer to older residents that would encourage them to move out of family size housing. So there was this a focus on what's being called right sizing. So that was very very keen part of our brief. Um, one bed homes um, were well in large one bed homes were, were felt to be the right approach there. Certainly from a cost perspective and everything else, they they worked very well. In our case, the tenure was straightforward because we only build affordable homes. So 
they are only for rent or for, for shared ownership. So that, that kind of made that side of it quite straightforward. And again, all of our homes are, now that we're building, are, are sort of very kind of progressive in terms of their environmental credentials. So um, the passive house credentials were a step ahead of where we might have automatically gone, but um, but I think that's the right thing, and that's certainly proven to be the case with energy prices as they are now. I think the intergenerational housing element of it was the bit where that was the unknown and that was the challenge for us because we were stepping outside of our normal aim, ambition of developing you know, good quality homes um, that were affordable. So, um, and that took us on a, a learning curve and added some uncertainty to the scheme. So um, we spoke with Goldsmiths University from the very beginning and they were always very keen and supportive. But of course you are kind of developing a design for a period where there's no agreements between the parties. So there are some risks there. And, you know, we were quite late in the design development before we had formed agreements between the parties for them to lease the homes that we were we were going to build. Now, we had designed them in a way that we could backtrack to um, all accommodation for older persons should that relationship not work out. So we did have an exit strategy there. But nevertheless, that was still something that um, if you like, was a was a risk and a challenge. So the learning curve on the intergenerational side and the um, and the relationship, uh, the agreements between ourselves, the legal agreements between ourselves and Goldsmiths, were something that was a challenge. And then um, from a planning perspective, the local authority were very supportive of what we were trying to do in terms of introducing the intergenerational side of things. So it, it didn't really pose a, a problem there. We were building up homes purely, like 99% for older persons and all being one bed sort of steps outside of the normal mix of housing that that they would expect to be developed. But given that it was focused on a particular housing need, they were, they were supportive of that and supportive of the, uh, the intergenerational initiative. So that's our kind of experience of it, really. That's all very interesting. And, and I certainly recall the some of the difficulties that we had looking particularly at the, the legal aspects when we were working with you on that, Steve, and looking at how we made sure that, you know, you weren't straying into the territory of students becoming employees and things like that. So, um, yeah, there was there was quite a few sort of technical things to look at on that side of things as well. Thank you both very much for your time uh, and for joining me into my exploration into Trower's podcasts. But um, really interesting information and um, just one really quick yes or no question before we go. Do you think that there is a call for more of these types of schemes in the future? We hear a lot. Oh, well, so every now and again, it pops up in the media that, you know, places like Denmark are really good at, you know, doing these intergenerational schemes. Do you think that's something we'll see more of in the UK? Yes, definitely. Um, I actually have some personal experience of it myself because my father's actually looking um, to do a home share at the moment. Um, so um, a lot of what uh, Steve just described in about setting up charters and contracts is really interesting. Um, and for my dad, I can see it's given him a new lease of life. It's something that he's really looking forward to. Um, and he sees it as the next stage in his life. Um, and he's looking at it for all the reasons that Steve is as well. He's looking at it for having giving somewhere for a younger person to live in his home who um, may not be able to afford rent somewhere else and um, but he's looking for that sort of a bit of companionship and, and having someone around on a day-to-day -day basis but actually just really for that um, 
social interaction and for actually sort of a bit of a conversation around whatever's going on in a day-to-day basis in the world. And um, I think it's, you know, I think it's something we'll see more and more of and not, you know, specialist housing is not for everyone. We know that the vast majority of people want to live in their own homes, but a lot of people as they age don't want to be isolated in their home and they don't want to be, um, you know, necessarily in an older people's housing scheme. So I think the idea of mixing generations and setting up charters around it, and, you know, because there has to be protection for both sides in that um, for lots of different reasons. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more of it and I think they're really exciting. It's a really exciting space to be in. Lovely. Thanks, Jenny. Steve? Absolutely, yeah. I think the, the combination of um, an ageing population and the challenges that that brings, it means that there, that there has to be a different approach to housing when you're older. I mean, it's something that I think we'll all be looking at a lot younger as well. I don't think we'll start looking at it when we're, you know, at an elderly age. I think we'll start looking at it in middle age and, and thinking about what our future needs might be and where they might be. So, yeah, I definitely think there'll be an increase in different types of housing for older people, including intergenerational elements. Lovely. Thank you. I'm really positive note to end on there. And I agree, it's a very exciting space to be. Well, thank you both very much for your time. It's been great talking to you. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. And do get in touch if you've got any questions. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Trowers and Hamlins. Find us at trowers.com and join in the conversation on Twitter at Trowers or find us on LinkedIn and Instagram.